Hey everybody, welcome back to this week's episode of Now Then, a little bit of Zen. It's hot and muggy outside, but we've got a very cool show here for you today. As always, I'm Daniel C. Hartman, your host, and thanks for checking us out again today. We've got a great guest for you today. He's detained today with a little bit of business. Until then, we've got a couple movie reviews for you. One, one of the movies we saw has a Golden Age character prominently, and our guest is actually here. Hey, Phil, how's it going? Good, how are you? Good. So you how are things... Video or just audio? We're just on audio today. Okay. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you loud and clear. Awesome. All right, so we might get to those movie reviews after our guest today, but today's guest is one of the nicest guys in the business. I met him over 20 years ago, and when I was just starting out in this crazy little business of comic book journalism, and he had just started penciling a little uh, title about a certain Emerald Archer. And through the years, this guy has become a good friend and even a mentor when it comes to navigating the waters of the comic industry. And as far as penciling credits go, what has our guest not worked on? Nightwing, Batman, Superman, Namor, Justice League, Justice League Dark, El Diablo, Ant-Man, Swamp Thing, Flinch, Ultimate Marvel Team-Up, Clerks, The Lost Scene, The Crow, Waking Nightmares, The Wretch, which was nominated for the 1997 Eisner Award for the Best New Series, Aliens Purge, and of course, his run on Green Arrow. As a writer, he's worked on numerous titles over the years, such as Wonder Woman, Black Terror for Dynamite, Days Missing, Fire Breather, as well as acclaimed creator-owned titles like Deep Sleep and The Coffin. So with many thanks for taking time out from his very busy schedule. Here's Phil Hester. Hey, Dan. How's it going? Not too bad. So what's going on in your very busy life right now, Phil? I'm drawing too much. <laughs> <laughs> I'm drawing a lot um, and not writing very much, which I'd like to reverse, but when the when people keep coming to you with uh gigs that you can't refuse you sort of have to take them exactly could be worse could have nothing going on so right i'm i'm always aware of that and uh i try i try to keep aware of my uh, check my privilege as it is so anything that you can talk about no <laughs> okay <laughs> um it's a big, um, I think the last thing that I could talk about is already out, which was I did a quick fill-in on uh, Blue and Gold with Dan Jurgens, um, mm -hmm. And right after that, I went immediately into penciling what this uh, top secret book I'm doing. I can tell you it's for DC and it's with a, with a writer I've admired for a long time and not worked with yet. Um, and then it's being inked by my uh, usual anchor Garrett Gapster and 
and we're having a blast because uh, we're getting to stretch new muscles for us and explore new aesthetic techniques, uh, but also work on a character that sort of um, maybe the DC universe's best kept secret and we're sort of bringing him into the spotlight in a way that I think will excite a lot of people. Okay, can you tell me, is this going to be taking place in the pre or post Dark Crisis universe? It is in a, uh, boy, I don't know how to describe it. It's sort of in that, <laughs> that sort of out of continuity, evergreen DC story universe that exists. Um, where things like the Dark Knight and uh, Killing Joke happen. Okay, let's just say it's in the multiverse. Yes. Or as they would say, um, as uh, what did they, how did they describe that in their, um, their, in the, in the their, olden day? they had a nice, they had a nice run of books that were their, Good stuff that was didn't fit into continuity, but was you mean Elseworlds? Elseworlds, yes. It's not quite Elseworlds because it's not like uh, you know Gotham by Gaslight. It's not transposing a known character into an alternate setting or timeline. It's just a story that sort of uh, it involves. It, it, it involves a character peripherally that's sort of a huge integral part of the DC universe. And to involve that character and try to make it work with his really complicated timeline is, is futile. So we're just sort of moving it out of, moving it out of continuity and just having it be a self-contained story. Okay. All right. We will leave it there. So, all right. Speaking of Dark Knight, one of my favorite things that you've shared with me over the years was how you once encountered the guy that um, that was responsible for the Dark Knight, uh, Mr. Frank Miller, and how he complimented you at one time. In yeah, a very, it's probably something he doesn't even he doesn't remember in any way. <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, but to uh, Andy Parks and I, it was like a big deal. Um, I think it was um, the year. It was the San Diego after Green Arrow had come out and was DC's number one book at the time. So we were guests of the convention, um, which was kind of rarefied air for us. And uh, it was after the show and we were just wandering around. You know, if you've ever been to San Diego, you know, you can walk out the back door of the convention center and be on the ocean. And there's a neat little seaport village and some docks and marinas. So you can just it takes absolutely zero time to get to the ocean. And we were out back of one of the hotels, I think the Hyatt, oh no, the Marriott. And we were just chilling, walking along the, the ocean and we came along uh, Bob Shrek and Bob Shrek was talking to the skinny guy who was holding an armful of history books. And I, Andy was like, hey, that's Frank Miller. <laughs> and and we're like, well, we're never going to get a chance to talk to Frank Miller. We need to make Shrek introduce us because Bob Shrek was our editor on Green Arrow at the time. So this was probably like the least awkward way we could ever stumble across to meet Frank Miller. And uh, 
uh, Shrek introduced us and uh, Frank said, yeah, I know you guys were, you guys are real cartoonists, which <laughs> to Andy and I meant the world because it, it meant, oh yeah, you guys understand storytelling and you guys understand like how to reduce things to their essential elements. And coming from a guy we both admired like unreservedly at that time, uh, it meant a lot to us. It was sort of like uh, the scene in Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer when uh, Clarice tells Rudolph he's cute, and we, we like, and he finally flies. And we had that we had that feeling after that. But it was very cool to meet Frank. We got to see some really um, preliminary work that he was doing on Three Hundred, and uh, that he was doing on what was it at the time going to be Batman Holy Terror, and then became. Uh, holy terror because dc did not want to publish that so. yeah it changed considerably in the time frame uh when he started it and when uh you know 9-11 kind of threw a lot of people for a loop and i think he was one of them so it kind of it kind of uh put him off his rails but uh my respect for his work and uh has never diminished So how many shows have you got lined up this summer? Not a ton. I mean, it's kind of crazy. That's like one of the biggest changes in the industry is that when I started out, almost every convention was in the summertime. And now I think that like the competition got so fierce for July that people started avoiding July. <laughs> and um, so uh, a lot of the cons I go to now are in the spring and the fall. Um, but I do have Fountain City coming up um, on the, uh, in the suburbs of Kansas City at the end of July. And then uh, for sure, I'm going to do um, Supercon in Sioux Falls, South Dakota in September. And I'm sure I have other shows. Like, oh, and I'm going to do a small show in Des Moines in November. But, you know, I have, I'm sure other shows will come up. Uh, on the calendar between now and then. Oh, and and uh, Air Cap in Wichita in November as well. Yeah, I thought it was crazy because C2E2 is the same weekend downtown Chicago as they have some crazy um, monster con out where Wizard oh. World used to be at um, out at the um, Ro Rosemont. So, yeah, at the Donald E. Stevens. Yeah, I don't, I, you know, it used to be that cons tried not to step on each other, but that those days are over. Yeah, it's really, really bizarre. They're, they're sort of the same um, crowd, but not really the same crowds. Yeah, I think I've done a show where that one of those monster cons and a comic con just sort of said, look, let's just be in the same facility, you know, <laughs> and I think people still had to buy separate tickets, but uh, they were in the same convention center. It actually worked really well. And they actually could be. So yeah. there's, they're the same crowd. So yeah, it's a natural crossover. I, yeah. It's the kind of thing that they should probably coordinate, but who knows? So one thing you're known for an extensive collection of original comic art. 
Yes. So, so, and also you've got something named after you called the Hester Paradox. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, the idea be behind the Hester Paradox is if you have a holy grail piece of art that you're chasing, it's always going to stay the same percentage out of your reach, no matter what your income is. So when I was a kid and wanted John Byrne pages and they were $100 uh, and I was 15, $100 is, is uh, what I spent on my wife's engagement ring when I was 17, you know? <laughs> So, uh, so it was like, oh, that's, you know, that's out of my range, but someday I'll get there. And then as I got older and they were, they became $5,000 pages, then $10,000 pages, then $30,000 pages, there was the same proportion out of my range. So that's what the Hester paradox means. So what would you consider holy grail for you now these days? Oh, it's really tough. I really, I really feel like my collection won't be complete until I get a Kirby Senate Fantastic Four page, um, which are so out of reach, or a Jim Steranko storytelling page. I have, like, I have Kirby's and I have Steranko's, but they're they're not those specific things that I really want. Um, and of course, I'd love to have a Dark Knight page, but those are all completely out of reach, unless. Uh, unless they hit the lottery or, you know, land a development deal with Netflix, those are going to be, uh, those are going to be dreams. They could happen, so. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> yeah, one thing that I've noticed about the original art that, um, you know, the more, you know, the burn pages they're they're very out of some of those are very much out of reach so and you know anything um i saw um some of the pages they had a marvel exhibit the marvel universe exhibit was um at the at the chicago at the museum of science and industry in chicago right speaking of steranko pieces um, work. They had the Steranko Fury pages. I mean, amazing work. So oh, yeah. it's like, my God, this guy is amazing. So yeah, he's, he's, he's sort of like pound for pound, the biggest in innovator in comics. And I don't mean like, because of his stature, I mean, because of like, the amount of work he's done the amount of pages he's generated in comics is not very high. Um, you know, his whole career, uh, you know, it's just a couple hundred pages. And, but each one of those pages is, is like a treatise on what storytelling can do in, on the, in the comics form. Like he never, he, especially in the later portion of his career while he was still making comics, every page was a deep exploration of what a, a page was capable of, which I find really admirable. So for a, a person that, you know, didn't have any huge long runs on any project, um, he really changed the world with a very few amount of pages. Plus he became better known for writing, you know, 
the Stranko history of comics. Yeah, that was my introduction to him as a kid was I was lucky that my uh, junior high had a set of the Stranko history and it, it was in my locker more than it was in the library. I checked it out on a pretty much continual basis. And I was just, because this is before the internet. And so like this is the only place you could go to see reproductions of old pulp covers or old golden age covers, even though they were very small, it was still like intoxicating to see this whole other world, this whole other history of comics that I didn't know anything about. And then to hear the stories also of the form, the transition from pulps to comics and the golden age and then into the silver age, um, that was all fascinating to me. And it was very like, it filled my head with a lot of the, like the romance of what it would be like to be a cartoonist. And um, that still never left me, you know, I still have that sort of, uh, you know, even when this job gets tough, I'm like, hey, those are the Knox kid. That's part of being a cartoonist. Yeah, very true. And it's, you know, and you had a dream and you fulfilled it and you're, you're there. So, and yeah, I chased the car and I caught it. That's right. So, so one thing you're, you're very good at, I've noticed you are very good at doing portfolio reviews for a lot of people that are wanting to break in to the industry. And so you see a lot of, a lot of people's work. So for listeners that really may not know what, what to bring to, to a show, some, some words of advice. Well, I would say the number one thing is um, it's better to have like four or five really good pages than it is to have 20 pages if you have to apologize for some of those 20 pages. So like, oh, it's okay to have a lean portfolio as long as it's your very best work. Um, if you bring a portfolio to me and start equivocating about the quality of the pages, it sort of undercuts your argument that you're ready to make comics. So it's better to have like, like, you know, five or six really tight pages that are really dead on than it is to have a big portfolio. Also, I would say anytime you're presenting a portfolio to, for review, it shouldn't have work in it that's any older than six months. I wanna see what you're capable of today um, I don't want to see stuff that's from two years ago and you apologizing for all the stuff you've learned between then and now. Um, what interests me is what you're capable of now and what you can produce in the future. Uh, it, I understand sometimes it is fun to see your progress from the past to the future, but that's for yourself to look at and for your own personal review. When I'm reviewing your portfolio, I want to see your best. So that's my, that's the main thing. And then also I would, you know, if, if you're, if you want to get cover gigs, it's fine to put covers in your portfolio, but if you want to draw comics, I need to see panel pages. So I need to see storytelling. Um, and if you're there to be, if you're presenting a, a portfolio for inks or finished work, 
Um, I'd like to see both stages, pencils and inks. Um, but that's, be, those are very general pieces of advice because I, I think I have a reputation for giving good portfolio reviews because uh, the number, I, I think the most important skill I have is I, I can discern what a young artist's goals are with their work and speak to their goals, not try to make them fit into my goals. So if I see a young artist that, um, you know, draws like Tilly Walden, I know they're not trying to work on Iron Man, you know? <laughs> or if I see a young artist that works um, uh, like Daniel Warren Johnson, I'm not gonna gripe about the, you know, the quality, like how neat their work is because I know it's about energy. So uh, I try to like, discern what their goals are, ask them, interrogate their goals, and then try to help them get there instead of saying, well, if you want to be like me, you need to do this. That's not important to me. What's important to me is helping them become the artist they want to be. Now, one thing that I tell, I tell people as a, as a consumer of sequential art, I tell them is draw in your own style. Do not yeah. Don't try to, you know, a lot of artists try to ape somebody else's style because I mean. Well, I would say every artist starts out that way. Oh, yeah. It's hard to know. Somebody's going to be the person that lit your fire to become an artist. And for a couple of years, you're going to be a lot like that person. But if you are committed to working and if you turn out page after page, your own style is going to come out, no matter how much you you feel like you started out aping somebody. So I wouldn't get too hung up about what your style is at all, because your style is going to assert itself through work. So um, don't think about that, in my opinion. Don't think about style. Just think about storytelling. And I think that's also the one universal constant throughout all these different types of portfolios I see, whether this someone is a, like an alternative car cartoonist and they want to be, you know, the next uh, Dan Close, or if I see like uh, somebody that wants to be the next Jim Lee, they both have to have functional storytelling skills. And that's something I think I can provide a little bit of insight to when I review their portfolios. So basically, always remember that it's sequential art, so... Yeah, the lean on sequential. So if I can't follow your, like I should be able to follow your story from the thumbnails of your story, meaning just the stick figures. Um, so that's a good little tip right there. If you can't follow your own, your own story at the very basic first step of the, draw, of the drawing of the page, you're already off on the wrong foot. So last question, Phil, how do you spend your downtime when you're not changed your drawing board or computer? I don't really have downtime. I guess, uh, boy, that's really hard to think about. I, I like to read, of course. Um, I like to collect comic art, as we said. I do play fantasy football with a bunch of other comics pros. Um, and I find I find that like real life makes plenty of demands on me. <laughs> so I have no problem filling up that time with volunteer work or, or helping out with um, 
uh, my mother-in-law who needs care or uh, helping my kids as they're out getting a start in the world. So yeah, there's no, I, I don't know what downtime is. Okay. That's, downtime is a foreign subject to many of us. So. <laughs> Ask me when I'm 80, maybe I'll know then. That's right. So we're all getting there pretty quick. So yeah. Hey, thank you very much for joining us today, Phil. No problem, Dan. Uh, anytime. Yeah. Look forward to hanging out with you in person sometime soon. And Yes. Yeah, so good luck with everything coming up and look right. forward to seeing what you got coming up, these top secret projects. So Awesome. Thanks, Daniel. Talk to you soon. Yes. See you later. Bye-bye. Bye now. All right, now, as we said, we've got a couple movie reviews. One of the movie reviews that we are gonna do is saw Elvis last Saturday. Elvis had a little tie-in with a Golden Age character. Golden Age character was Captain Marvel Jr. I was very happy with how that it was Captain Marvel Jr. I've not been happy with how DC's handled Captain Marvel, the character Captain Marvel, the Marvel family in recent years. Shazam is the word that Captain Marvel, that Billy Batson says to turn into Captain Marvel. It's not his name. I realize that there are copyright things and that there are Marvel has, you know, a movie called Captain Marvel, and that's Car Carol Danvers' character. But Captain Marvel has a rich history, and so they should be happy to have this character. Even though the book's named Shazam, it is Captain Marvel. Anyway, Captain Marvel Jr. Captain Marvel Jr., was back in the day, they decided that they needed sidekicks for the characters. Of course, Captain Marvel was never a heavy character like Batman, but they needed, they first came out with Mary Marvel, who is Billy Batson's uh, long lost sister, Mary Bromfield. But then they decided they needed another character. So that was Freddie Freeman. Freddie Freeman was a newsboy who was crippled by Captain Nazi. So Captain Marvel saved him by giving him some of his powers. Of course, the thing was, he didn't say Shazam to get his powers he had to say Captain Marvel. So he couldn't even say his own name. He had to say Captain Marvel. So he couldn't tell people his name. Who are you? I'm Captain Marvel Jr. Then the lightning would change him back into Freddie Freeman. So, but anyway, Elvis loved this character so much that he copied his black hair. Elvis was a natural blonde. I bet you didn't know that. And dyed his hair black, had that little spit curl thing going on, 
and the cape. So he had the cape going on too, those capes that he wore when he was, you know, getting to be his chubby Elvis, copied those after. And the lightning bolt, in the movie, he wore this lightning bolt around his neck when he was a kid. And also when he was older, he had this neck, this ornament for TCB, taking care of business for the Memphis Mafia. That's his group of friends and cousins and everything, taking care of business, TCB, with the lightning, stylized lightning, thunderbolt, lightning bolt. And that also was based on Captain Marvel Jr. So there's your Elvis tie. But then Thor, we're getting very short on very short on time. So our trivial question for this week is who what was the name of the character that Phil Hester created for Green Arrow? This character was a very, very odd killer with an odd name a figure of speech that is the trivial question for this week a very very odd killer with a very very odd name A figure of speech. Created by Phil Hester. That is our trivia question for this week. Email that answer to ntbz1 at outlook.com. Again, ntbz1 at outlook.com. This is now, then, and a little bit of Zen signing out for this week. Daniel C. Hartman, thank you for listening. been very great having you here today and we'll see you next week.